UCB Life Issues with Paul Hammond. And as always, a very warm welcome to this week's Life Issues. Have you ever stuffed up, got it wrong, had a moment after a conversation where you think, I can't believe I said that, or perhaps where you just wish you didn't always have to be so vocal? No? Just me then. I think we all have, haven't we? But have you ever stuffed up so badly that you thought, that's it? There's no way back from this. They'll never forgive me. No second chances anymore. And of course, the truth is that you can, with most people, get eventually to that point where they say enough is enough, where you fall beyond the pale, where there is no coming back, where the dust is firmly shaken from the feet. Indeed, there are those who say that sometimes it's necessary to do that to people, even that Jesus recommended it and that God did it when he hardened Pharaoh's heart. But in actuality, it does seem that God gives second chance on second and sometimes even 70-second chance to start again. But rather than seeing this as just some cosmic get-out clause that allows us to be ambivalent about our stumbles, should we be more inclined to set great value on this act of grace? so that we can take the opportunity it affords to actually grow and go in a better direction. John Mark was the author of the second gospel. He stuffed up, but with the help of those around him, he discovered that a second chance wasn't a case of ignoring his flaws and sweeping it under the carpet, but rather learning that in them, God could make a place of value and strength. So our theme this week is the second chance. And joining me to explore it is a regular contributor to Life Issues and author of the book Second Chance, The Fall and Rise of John Mark, published by our friends at River Publishing. It is Dr. John Andrews. John, welcome to Life Issues. Uh, thanks, Paul. It is so wonderful to be with you. And I so enjoyed that introduction. That was amazing. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> You're very kind, sir. I have to say, I thoroughly enjoyed your book and I enjoyed it from like the very, the very start of it because I noticed in the preface that you include a story from Eugene Peterson that for me really did seem to set the tone of where this book, this intent, this thought that you have about the second chance was going. So, I wonder if you would share it with us and then explain what it said to you when you came across it. Sure, sure. It's from one of my favourite books. I, I absolutely love Eugene Peterson and, uh, of course, Now in Heaven, um, but wrote some amazing books. And in his book, Run with the Horses, um, a new edition was brought out in celebration of his passing. And his son uh, wrote a beautiful uh, forward in the context of this book, and he included this story. And essentially, it's a little parable, little proverb almost thing of, of a young girl going down to the water every day, and she's got um, two jugs of water balanced on a pole on, on each side of the pole, and she goes down to the water every day, and she fills both the pots with water. But one of the pots is cracked, and as she then walks home, essentially half the water leaks out of the pot, and this goes on and on and on and on and on. And eventually the pot speaks to her and the pot asks her this question, why do you keep using me? 
when all I do is leak. Why don't you replace me with a new pot? And the young girl then explains and, uh, and asks the pot to sort of, uh, if you like, look at the path that they've taken. And she notices that, that actually uh, along the path where you've got a gorgeous row of flowers growing, and in fact, the child would pick these flowers and these flowers would adorn the home. And essentially, what the little girl explains is that she said, every spring I planted seeds on your side, knowing that the water that would come from your pot would water these flowers and eventually fill our home with fragrance. She says, she concludes, I couldn't do it without you. What you thought was a flaw is actually a gift to us mm. all. Now, the reason that spoke to me so powerfully was not because I wanted to find an excuse to accept the flaws, but because I recognized that in each of us, there is flaw, there is brokenness, there is weakness. And sometimes, of course, that, that, that flaw, that weakness, that brokenness gets expressed, perhaps in extreme moments in failure. And I, I included that story because, number one, I resonated with it. In many, in many ways, I see myself both redeemed by Jesus, but also with vulnerability and brokenness in mm. my own heart. And then as I was studying and reflecting on the life of John Mark, I just couldn't resist the connection between a young man who would eventually write the first gospel, second in our New Testament, of course, but chronologically the first gospel, the first of many documents that would transform our lives. He would become the Bishop of Alexandria, one of the greatest churches in the early church history, and he would die a horrific martyr's death in that city. And I couldn't help reflect on his beginnings, this young man who deserts Paul and Barnabas and is given a second chance and seems to grab that second chance. And in the midst of his own brokenness and flawedness, he he allows the grace of God to work in him and produce something of fragrance that we are still, can I, can I say, we're still smelling today. Yeah. And, and that is remarkable. To me, that's a remarkable biblical idea. It's a remarkable redemptive idea. And I don't think it's a human on planet Earth, whatever your religious persuasion or not, who doesn't, who doesn't feel some sense of resonance and attraction to that idea that somehow in our brokenness, we can find redemption. It is a massive premise, though, isn't it? Because that idea that God can use our brokenness to create fragrance. Um, I mean, yes, in our brokenness, there, there is redemption. And we'll, we'll look more at the, the story of John Mark in, in, in a moment. But, but there is a danger there, isn't there, that we do, we use ideas like that, images of like that, like that, as a way to excuse our flaws. Oh, well, you see, yes, but God can use this, so it'll be okay in the end. I mean, what if the flaw we're talking about is an active sin, an active contravention of God's way? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great reflection. And of course, uh, nowhere in seeking to help anyone engage in a second or a third or a fourth chance are we calling for um, a turning a blind eye to behavior, even to belief system, even to patterns of living that are fundamentally destructive 
or out of line with God's best for our lives. So uh, hopefully our, our listeners will not hear what we're not saying. We're, we're not talking here about excusing bad behavior. We're not talking here about ignoring our behavior. And I think in the story of John Mark, none of that gets ignored. I think it gets confronted. And although the Bible remains, remains in some ways silent about it, there is definitely a level of confrontation. But we are talking about uh, a grace-filled approach to that confrontation, a, a grace-filled approach to that sense of, right, something needs to be addressed, something needs to be changed, something needs to be fixed, but we want to do it in a grace-filled way so that we enable those who have failed or those who are broken or those who who are stumbling into these repeated patterns. We are saying, actually, in the grace of God, there is another opportunity. But but I would say this, and this is the problem, Paul, I think the grace of God and the conversation of redemption, restoration and repurposing is always wide open to abuse. Mm. It's, it's open to the feeling that, hold on a minute, uh, are, are, are we just going soft on some stuff? Are we going light on sin? Are we letting people get in away with stuff? And of course, there's a sense in which I think the biblical narrative uh, does address all of those things, but always with ultimately a grace-filled approach of restoration and um, repurposing. And there is a difference, isn't there, between the the flaw that is an active choice to fly in the face of God's best for us and a flaw that is the restrictions and limitations of our humanity, you know, if you like Paul's thorn in the flesh or whatever, those things which are the constraints of, you know, as the body gets older, so the spirit may still be willing, but it takes twice as long to do anything. All those sorts of elements that we can grow frustrated with and feel that somehow there is no possibility for us to function effectively, those are the flaws which can then be taken up when they're surrendered to God and used to create something positive. Yeah, completely. And I would say in in trying to analyze the failure, in trying to analyze the mistakes, in trying to analyze, to use the analogy, the cracks in the pot, we're, we're thinking about context and trajectory. And, and I think context is crucial. Is this, is this someone who's just made a mistake? It's a genuine mistake. And there's a whole conversation around John Mark around that. Um, or, or is this a trend? Is this, is this something that is deeply rooted in some ideas that actually do, do need to be fundamentally challenged in our discipleship process? And, and also, what's the trajectory here? Is this a good person who's just stumbled? Or is this someone who doesn't want to grow, doesn't want to learn, doesn't want to move forward, doesn't want to take seriously the repercussions of their mistakes or even bring some sense of restitution and um, uh, uh, if you like, repentance mm. to those mistakes. So for me, context and trajectory, ha- having been a parent, still raising, you know, my, my children are adults, but you're still in conversations of love and, and raising it. But certainly when we were raising our children when they were younger, context and trajectory was, <laughs> yes. was a crucial idea because yeah. if you treat every mistake on the same level, then life could be extremely, extremely painful for everybody. Uh, and there has to be an understanding of why this person did this, what were the factors that brought this into play? And is there a trajectory that helps guide our understanding as to where this is going or where it could go and should go? So I think that's a helpful qualification Mm. in my journey, context and trajectory. 
You're listening to UCB Life Issues, talking this week to Dr. John Andrews, and we're talking about the themes of his book, Second Chance, The Fall and Rise of John Mark. It's published by River Publishing. And you alluded earlier on about your own sense of resonance with this story and with the themes that you were writing and i have to say having read them there are many parts of the book that could have been autobiographical for my life you know i mean seriously they how did you know this about me john (laughs) but is it important that we are all willing to resonate with our shortcomings rather than hide from them yeah, I, I actually think that most most humans on planet Earth connect to that idea much quicker than than the sort of um, relentless success stories that we have. I think most people who've been on planet Earth more than five minutes have had the the joy and the challenge of stumbling and hopefully recovering. But but actually, we all identify with this idea. But sometimes in the cut and thrust of life, we, we forget how powerful and how constantly powerful this idea is with us. That actually every single success story in whatever context you want to think about it will have a fairly consistent theme <laughs> of failure yes. underneath it. Now, of course, there's there's capital F failure and there's small F failure. You know, there's different types of failure and there's different contexts of that failure. But my goodness, if if everyone who is currently successful, however you denote success, had had given up or had been abandoned when they stumbled and fell, then then they wouldn't be there. And certainly, look, this this summer I'm celebrating 35 years in Christian ministry. And I'm I'm celebrating the fact of God's faithfulness and his goodness because mm. I I certainly wouldn't be here if it if it if it was reliant on a perfect and a flawless journey. I've made many mistakes as a as a man, as a husband, as a dad. My goodness, sometimes I can't spell the word dad. <laughs> Never mind stuff, you know. And 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 as a pastor and trying to lead other followers of Jesus, my goodness, the mistakes that we've made. Some of those have been small, some of those have been larger. But I've been very, 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 very blessed by and large. And I've been surrounded by generally a grace-filled community that has sought to help me address the mistakes, address the failure and learn from those mistakes where necessary, make restitution for those mistakes, but then go forward mm. and live a life that that actually makes those mistakes worthwhile. And, and I think John Mark is a phenomenal hidden jewel of a story. It's a hidden in plain sight story in the New Testament. And I think John Mark's story is absolutely powerfully redemptive for all of us uh, as we consider our own lives. And it's important that we we grasp that sort of sense of redemption that is available because you're absolutely right everybody fails failure is a part of everybody who is honest about their life everyone's narrative and there is a danger though isn't there that our failures can become the focus of our narrative and there is a danger that and and i suppose when we start to think about second chances if we're going to to really be able to access effectively the second or 72nd chance that god gives us uh, 
if we're going to be able to do that, we need to acknowledge that we are not defined but our, by our failures. But as a line from a very well-known film says, often it's just easier to believe the bad stuff. Oh, completely, absolutely, and and I think it's not just it's not just your own journey of accepting a sense of definition around events in your life, but also the the other thing you you really struggle sometimes to contend with is the community around you defines you by that mistake. You are you are known for that issue, or or you are remembered for that thing, and that can be very hard to get away from. And I think John Mark has to wrestle with both. I think there's a beautiful nuance in the text where when Paul writes to the church at Colossae, he says, look, uh, you've received instructions concerning Mark. If he comes, welcome him. And, and he writes that letter to the church at Colossae at the same time that he writes a letter to one of his best friends, Philemon, who just happens to be in the church at Colossae. In fact, there's a good chance that the church at Colossae meets in Philemon's house. And he writes to Philemon at the same time that he writes to the church at Colossae about Philemon's slave, a man called Onesimus, mm -hmm. who clearly had stolen something and done a runner. And while on the run, uh, amazingly meets up with Paul clearly gets converted. And then Paul sends Onesimus back as his son in the faith. And you get this incredible conversation where uh, Paul is asking Philemon not to, to allow Onesimus' actions to become the defining issue of their relationship, but to accept him as a son, to accept him as a brother, to accept him as useful. Now, of course, Philemon, uh, Onesimus has to face the music. He has to go back to Philemon. He has to address those issues. I'm absolutely certain there's a restorative and a restitutional conversation that goes on in there. And I think that's all tucked away in the text. But, but essentially, I think Paul is appealing for Onesimus not to allow this to define him in the same way that he writes to the wider churches of Colossae. And he says, don't allow what you may have heard about John Mark mm. to define your view of him, because when he comes, I want you to welcome him. And I think Paul recognizes the power of the perception of this failure over our lives. And, you know, and I've discovered this, Paul, that for some people, perceptions nine tenths of the law. So, so they, 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 they accept what they perceive to be true rather than what may be actually true. And that is one of the most difficult things to overcome feeling defined by your own mistake, but having the community around you continue to define you according to that mistake. And that is a powerful idea that must be addressed. So there's a, a sense, it seems, in what you're saying and indeed what you write, that if we are going to think about second chances for ourselves, we need to recognise the importance of genuine restorative second chances for others in the same way that jesus yeah. said if you do not forgive you cannot be forgiven if you don't recognize the importance of forgiveness for other people how can you receive it for yourself and that's the case here if we want god to give us a second chance we actually need to look closer to home absolutely and there is a powerful tension here and and, and it's it's worth dropping off here and thinking about this there is a powerful tension between forgiveness and reconciliation here. And, and I think it's really important because I, I think some people have picked up my book and sort of uh, maybe been a bit nervous that I'm being a bit, a bit sort of frivolous or less serious about 
about mistakes and failure. But but of course we're not. We're, we're trying to drill into some very difficult issues. And and what we discover is that you know forgiveness is unconditional. I I don't need any conditions to forgive you. But if I'm going to be reconciled with you, if we're going to build again, then there's some conditions that have to be met. And I think the biblical narrative helps us with that. And I think you see that tension with Barnabas, Paul and John Mark. I think forgiveness is personal. It's something that I can do on my own, whereas reconciliation is definitely relational. I cannot reconcile personally. You know, we have to reconcile relationally. I think thirdly, the forgiveness is focused on release, whereas reconciliation is focused on restitution, uh, mm-hmm. restoration and restitution. So forgiveness allows me to be free from something, whereas reconciliation is about rebuilding something and restoring something. And I think also, uh, let me say this, I think that forgiveness can live without reconciliation, but reconciliation cannot yes, survive yeah, without forgiveness. Definitely. So you can forgive someone without ever being reconciled. And are some of our listeners absolutely have come to a place of complete forgiveness of someone who did something very bad to them. And and there's no need to be reconciled to that person. In fact, to be reconciled sometimes would be a dangerous or unprofitable conversation. So, So the ideal is forgiveness, at least, and reconciliation if possible. And I think in John Mark's story, you get both. You get Paul sort of accepting him and saying, okay, he made a mistake, fine, but he's not coming with us. And it seems that Paul forgave him, but didn't what didn't want to be reconciled to him. Whereas Barnabas both forgives and reconciles. Yeah. And I think that's the difference. And I think that's the tension. And I think that's a never-ending tension for all of our viewers, uh, listeners, and all of our followers of Jesus. The tension between there are moments to forgive and there are moments where we want to push into reconciliation. And we've got to discern which is the the best or most profitable route with which to go. And managing that tension can be very, very difficult for us as we move forward. Can we cycle back to the the story of John Mark then? Because we're talking about Second Chances. Your book is called Second Chance, The Fall and Rise of John Mark. I mean, let's talk a little bit about what he did, but also how he came to that point. Because you don't have to come from a dodgy background in order to make a mistake, do you? And John Mark was the is a prime example of that. He came from a good, solid background, but he still managed to get it wrong. So unpack the story a little bit for us. Yeah, well, we first pick him up in Acts chapter 12, and we're introduced to him and his home, and his mother Mary is a, a very active follower of Jesus. In fact, she opens up her home, and it's such a well-known home, and I would suggest wealthy home in Jerusalem, that when Peter gets out of prison miraculously, the first place he goes to is her house. So this is a a really well-known activist home as far as the followers of the way is concerned, and John Mark gets raised in that. John Mark is raised by a godly mother. John Mark gets raised in a context of miracles. He's seen some of these incredible apostles firsthand. Here's Peter getting rescued from prison by an angel and then coming to his house and telling the story. I mean, imagine being in that small group Mm. when Peter rocks up to your house. (laughs) I mean, you're never going to forget that stuff. And then we're told that Barnabas and, and Saul take him. So clearly there was something about this young man that was good and and profitable and strong and trustworthy 
where they were prepared to take him with them to Antioch and then beyond that in this first missionary journey. So this is a boy with a good background, a good education. Uh, you know, his name is both Hebraic and Roman, you know, Johannan and Marcus, that, that lovely combination. So he's probably many languages uh, under his belt. He's probably well-educated uh, if, he, if he's come from a wealthy background. And he's clearly been around this church this, these followers of the way, to the extent that Paul, uh, Saul and Barnabas both entrust him for this first mm. missionary journey. And yet he blows it. Uh, and of course, that does speak to us all. Uh, you, you can have the best resources, the best background, the best upbringing, and still make mistakes, still make wrong choices, and still do things that in years to come, you think, what was I thinking when I did that? And and this has been, I, I, can I just say this has been particularly helpful for Christian parents, parents of, uh, who follow Jesus, and maybe some of their kids have made some choices that they scratch their heads over. And we often beat ourselves up by quoting or misquoting a proverb, you know, train a child in the way that they will go when they're old and <laughs> yes. not turn from it. My goodness, if that's being misquoted once, it's been misquoted a million times. And it just doesn't help. And, and, and the philosophy is this, well, you know, kids will follow what their parents say and do. And I would say, not always. No. And I would say, you can give a child, children, every opportunity, and yet they still make some decisions that have less to do with their upbringing or background or resources or opportunity, and more to do with the internal mechanisms that's going on in their world. And we need to recognize that John Mark is a phenomenal example of a well-raised boy who, for one reason or another, does a runner, and he abandons two men who have put colossal trust in him. Mm. And we're not quite sure why he abandons them, and the book suggests possibly one of two reasons, which are fairly valid at either. He, he runs because Paul sort of takes over the leadership of the team from Barnabas, and Barnabas is a relative of John Mark, of course, and also Paul's trajectory towards the Gentiles. So there could be some really uh, serious reasons. Also, I, I mean, the other maybe hidden reason is that John Mark is looking at, at the sort of persecution that seems to be growing towards their message, and he thinks, I don't really want to be around there. We're not really sure why he runs, but he runs. And actually, he he makes a decision that ultimately will be the seeds of a split between Paul and his best friend Barnabas. So it's a fairly, whatever reason he runs for, it's a fairly significant yeah. reason to cause two men two years later to split rather than stay together. And his example and his experience of that and the i suppose in many ways there would be the thought that that he could never come back from that and it would be it, for him it would have been understandable if he thought that how does he come back from it where does his second chance come well i mean a key personality in this is barnabas and um, you know Barnabas, uh, his Barnabas's actual name is Joseph, Joseph from the the, the Levite from Cyprus. Um, but of course, the apostles give him that name, Barnabas, son of encouragement. What a beautiful, beautiful! And they give him that name because that's what they say. Yes. And actually, some some people have accused Barnabas of of just acting in a generous way to, before towards John Mark because he's a relative. But this is such a disservice 
to Barnabas because be- before we even get to Acts 15, where this moment happens, Barnabas has been seen to be an encourager to Paul, to the church, to the poor, to the broken, to Antioch. I mean, this man is a 100. If I was looking for a template for an Ephesians 4.11 pastor, it would be Barnabas, even though he's never named as one. I think he is the just primary example of what I think a pastor looks like uh, in the context of the New Testament. And so Barnabas uh, reaches out to this young man and brings him up to Antioch again from Jerusalem. And then Paul suggests, let's, let's, do, a, let's do a second journey together. And it's there that Barnabas says, hey, that's, let's take John Mark with us. And then the balloon goes up. Mm. So, so you get this gorgeous little expression. It's almost so easy to miss in the text. It says, and Barnabas took him. And Paul doesn't want to take him. So it's clear that Paul has accepted John Mark or else he wouldn't be in Antioch with them. But it's clear that Paul does not trust John Mark. He doesn't, tr- whatever went on in Perga, Paul does not trust this boy that two years later he's put it right. And therefore Paul says, yeah, he's a, he's a good lad, but he's not coming with me, with me. And Barnabas says, but I want him to come. And Paul says, well, if you insist that he's going to come, then you better take him and I'll take somebody yeah. else. And essentially then Paul goes off with Silas and the story of the book of Acts continues through that lens. And then Barnabas takes John Mark to Cyprus and they disappear from the book of Acts narrative and they reappear later in the New Testament narrative. So John Mark really gets the second chance because someone took a punt on him. Someone gave him a go. Someone said, this boy's not done yet. Let's give him another opportunity. And so he argues, Barnabas argues, to give John Mark that second opportunity. And and really, in the book, I argue, every Christian should thank God for Barney. You know, Barnabas... (laughs) yes. Yeah. You'd be thanked because he his work ensures, along later on with Peter, that a young man's brilliance and genius is not lost to the kingdom of God. And it has to be said, I mean, people often say, what was it with Paul that you managed to fall out with Barnabas? Because you had to work really hard to fall out with Barnabas, didn't you? Let's be honest. But yeah. it also has to be said, you know, Paul wasn't so perfect himself. You know, he he had a bit of a way about him that could cause upset and cause people to to feel a bit, you know, knocked back and so on and so forth. He wants to, say, but it's often the case, isn't it, that we that which is in ourselves we hate most in others. And if Barnabas hurts, is that the right word? I don't know. Paul with his rejection, with his betrayal, with with his abandoning, or he broke the trust. You know, Paul's reaction to him. Sometimes we need to take a look at what's in our own eye, don't we? It's true. And, and you know, when I used to, I used to teach the Book of Acts at Bible College, and every time we got to Acts 15, it split the class. And I would often ask the question, who was right, Barnabas or Paul? Uh, now, of course, without looking at what comes later in the New Testament, it, it, you know, I just said, standing as it is now, Paul rejects John Mark, Barnabas takes him. Who, who do you think's right here? And the class was always divided, and it, it depended on where you stood in your gift, where you stood in your personality, and what you believed about your purpose. And it tended to be the sort of go-getter types <laughs> tended to say, oh, Paul was right. Yeah. Like, if he was on my team, I'd have just like, dropped him like a hot potato, you know? Um, and then the more pastoral types 
went, oh, no, you, you, well, no, Barney's got it right. Okay, he's, I mean, he's given the boy a second chance. Um, and actually, there's a sense in which, and here's the terrible paradox, I think, and there's a sense in which both men tragically were right. Mm. And that's the problem. I think, I think Paul, as a go-getter, as a, the type of man who is, you know, A-type personality, um, pioneer, uh, you know, in the space of 10 years with his team, preaches the gospel in four of the regions of Rome and is able to say at the end of his life, my work's done. I mean, this man is relentless. He's exhausting. Just, just following Paul's missionary journeys are exhausting, let alone being on them. And you can just see that Paul is going, we haven't got time for this. We haven't got time to let this, this sort of situation get in our way. We, we've got a world to reach and we need to do it now. And so Paul is driven by the sense of purpose. And, uh, and as a result of that, his pragmatism allows him to say, I'm going to drop this lad. Whereas Barnabas, maybe with a more pastoral heart, is going, well, hold on a minute, Paul. It wasn't that long ago that I rescued you from Tarsus and I brought you to Antioch. And actually, I was the one who defended you to the apostles. And if it wasn't for me, you wouldn't be here. Now, of course, that's not an X-15, but I can't imagine that's not somewhere <laughs> in the narrative. And Barnabas remembers that if it wasn't for the contribution of others, he wouldn't be there and Paul wouldn't be there yes. and John Mark yes. won't be there. So, so you get two men that can't work together, not because they fall. I don't think they fall out with each other. I think they fall out over a philosophy of ministry. And I think that's the issue that they divide on, which, of course, if you read the later narrative of the New Testament, it seems that Paul eventually tips his hat to Barney and says, actually, I think you got it right. Yes. And I got it wrong. Yeah. Absolutely. And the thing is, we can be very partisan, can't we, about mm. failure in that some failures are more acceptable than others. There are some there are some places where people fail and we are willing to embrace them and bring them back. And then there are some and it is they are beyond the pale. And, and mm. it's getting that. Well, the thing that strikes me, and, and, and you quote it in, in the book, you quote the example of Jesus with the woman caught in the act of adultery. The truth is, over and over and over again, Jesus, no matter how bad the failing, Jesus sought to cut people slack and give them a door to a second chance. Yeah, it's. I mean, if you look at John's gospel in which the, the John Ed story is rooted, you know, we're introduced to Jesus in John's gospel as full of grace and truth. And I think, again, there's a dynamic tension here that actually Jesus leads with grace and introduces truth. And in the story of the, the woman caught in the act of adultery, neither do I condemn you, grace, go and sin no more, truth. So you're getting, you're getting an incredible, Jesus somehow holds the grace and truth dynamic intention in brilliance over and over and over again in his ministry. And, and I would argue that the gospel generally, but the kingdom of God uh, specifically, is, is inclusive until we exclude ourselves. You know, it's, it's, a, it's an inclusive idea that says, neither do I condemn you, but then it also calls us to a pathway of truth. And when you look at Paul and Barnabas, dare I say, it, this is where it gets potentially edgy, so please forgive me if you disagree with this, or I hope it doesn't offend anybody. But I think Paul is leading with truth. And if when you lead with truth, then, then failure is, is not an option. And when you lead with truth, you're more interested in winning the argument than the person. Whereas when you lead with grace, it's about winning the person 
and negotiating with the argument. And, and actually, I think what you've got in Barnabas, he leads with grace. He doesn't ignore the failure. He doesn't ignore the truth issue. So don't hear what we're not saying. Barnabas doesn't ignore Mark's failure. He addresses that. But he says, look, we can give him a second chance having addressed this failure. So that's a grace-led conversation. Paul goes, no, no, he failed. He failed. And that's a truth issue. And Paul's right. And Barnabas is right. But when you separate grace from truth, you end up with a skewed approach to any individual. If it's all grace, we're in danger of maybe going too far on certain things. If it's all truth, we're in danger of maybe planting, uh, a, 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 as it were, a flag of self-righteousness in the ground. And, and then it's, it's about in or out. It's about black or white rather than actually negotiating in certain issues. So these are very, very difficult issues, but Jesus leads with a grace and truth yes. dynamic together. And I think if you read the Gospel of John with grace and truth, you see it everywhere. It is absolutely incredible. And, and ultimately one that I think is a way of stopping us from getting polarized um, on certain issues that, that maybe exercise us a little bit more. And if you read John's book, uh, it is called Second Chance, The Fall and Rise of John Mark. When you get to the portion where he talks about Jesus' response to the woman caught in adultery in John 8, I wonder if, like me, you will laugh out loud when you read the brackets because I have said those things, exactly those things, so many times when I have preached that passage because it is so true. Where was the bloke? when they dragged her in front of Jesus. Mark, of course, went on to a very close relationship and friendship with Peter and mm. moved from being someone who had run away to, as we said right at the beginning, the author of the first gospel to be penned. It sits as number two in the, in the way that they are ordered in the New Testament, bringing us the that very brief, succinct, to the point life of Jesus. What does it teach to us the way that Peter took him under his wing and he went from deserter to, well, the image that's given to Mark's gospel of winged lion? What, yeah. what does that tell us? Well, it, it, it tells us, first of all, Barnabas did a great job. So what if, you know, although Barnabas and Mark disappear from the, look, uh, the book of Acts narrative, clearly Barnabas did something incredible with this young man because not only does he take his second chance, but he ends up becoming the scribe of Peter. And in fact, Peter uh, in 1 Peter 5 refers to, to Mark as his son, the only person he refers to as his son. So Paul refers to three people as his sons. So this, this isn't a glib term. This mm. is a very, very intimate and personal term. And Peter refers to him. Now, what's really interesting, just a wider conversation, is that it, it, we're never introduced to John Mark's father in the New Testament narrative, and we're not aware that Peter had any biological children. Now, he may well have done, but they're not in the narrative in, in the context of the biblical text. Um, so you get this young man without a father uh, finding Peter, and Peter, it seems, without a son, finding a son. And they are both brought together because they have something profound in common. And what they have in common is that they both deserted someone they yeah. love. And, and I think, I think that's one of the most powerful restorative issues for John Mark. He, 
ends up not just sitting with a relative and a good person like Barnabas, who's going to love him no matter what, because Barney, that's what Barney does. But now he engages with Peter and Peter is able to sit with this boy and say, I know exactly what you went through and I know exactly what it means. And in fact, there, there are gorgeous little clues in the Mark and text where Mark seems to just tenderly as a son um, support his father. And there's clearly some nuances in the text where Peter has insisted certain things are left in that could have been left out. Mm. And, and I think Peter insists that certain details of his own failure are left in. For example, it's Mark who tells us that Peter blasphemed mm. when he denied Jesus. Mm. It's Mark who tells us that he wept bitterly. And, and you get these beautiful, beautiful ideas. It's, it's Mark who shows us all of that. And then, and then, of course, you get this gorgeous resurrection, Mark and inclusion, where Mark, where the angel says, go tell his disciples and Peter. And the only time that's included is in the Gospel of Mark. And I cannot imagine that that's for any other reason than Mark understands what the and feels like. Mark understands, go tell my disciples and Peter, that actually Mark understands the power or potential power of exclusion and the potential power of being defined by a mistake. And yet when Peter tells that story, Mark says, I've got to write that in. Uh, no other gospel writer includes it. Mark includes it because it's his father mm. and he's talking about his father in, in, in this faith context. And I think you get these beautiful two men coming together who absolutely understand the power of desertion and failure, but also understand the power of restorative love. Peter is restored by Jesus. Peter, do you love me? Feed my, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. And Peter gets restored by Jesus himself. And John Mark finds restoration through Barnabas and ultimate purpose inclusion through Peter. So I think the gorgeous uh, bringing together of these two men, not obvious in the biblical text, but if you look at the clues, they're there, where Peter becomes the father to John Mark and John Mark becomes the son to Peter. I think it is a glorious community redemptive moment that the church needs to pay attention to. And I started in my introduction by suggesting that perhaps we often treat second chances, including the second chances that God gives us over our failings and stumblings and deliberate choices to walk in an opposite direction to him. We often treat them as something almost glib, that they are just a, a cosmic get-out clause, a, a get-out-of-jail-free card, if you like. And yet the story of Mark, it seems to me, makes crystal clear that these things are, these second chances, these opportunities, these open doors, are something of far greater significance, if we will see it, because they are the the way of a a sea change, the way of a, a turning around, the way of a discovering new purpose, the way of being made whole after we have been damaged by some negative shortcoming. And mm. all too often, treating it as a something we can just shrug off, it actually leaves us with the damage. Yeah, it, it, entirely. And, and you know, I when I was writing the book, I had a profoundly emotional moment. I mean, even talking to you, I've, I've been overcome a number of times and I'm struggling still. 
But I had a profoundly emotional moment where in writing the book, I just happened to be in the Gospel of Mark as part of my everyday devotional reading. So I rotate the Gospels as part of my devotional practice. And as I was reading Mark, I started to cry. And I wasn't crying because of what I was reading in Mark. I was crying because the young man who got to pen these words got to pen them because Barnabas took him, Peter fathered him, and ultimately, and ultimately, Paul was reconciled to him. That actually he didn't just get here because he was strong and he didn't just get to write that gospel because he was tough and he didn't just get to write that because, oh yeah, it's what we do in the church, we give people a second chance. But he got to write one of the most beautiful documents in the scriptures because the community rallied around him, because men and women of faith rallied around him, because they didn't just see a second chance as a glib get-out car, but they saw it as something profoundly redemptive in its understanding, but also fundamentally kingdom of God in its DNA. This, this is who God is. This is who Jesus is. This is what the kingdom of God is like. This is the very essence of who we are, that we are prepared uh, to give people a second and third chance. Uh, absolutely. We've got to have the conversation. We've got to address the issues where restitution and restoration and reconciliation has to be. We've got to do all of that. Absolutely. But but actually, the the, 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 the church should be the place where people are given that second chance, not simply because it's what we do, but because of what it could ultimately produce. The, the, you know, I know in the sovereignty of God, this is a hard argument, but, but potentially the gospel of Mark may not have been written. Mm. If Barnabas had have said, yeah, Paul, you're right, the boy's not worth it, the gospel of Mark may not have been written. Mm-hmm. And that's an incredible idea that the first gospel, which sets the tone for the other gospels, is written by a deserter, is written by someone regarded by Paul in Acts 15 as unfit. And I think, my goodness, that's that's what keeps me going as a parent. That's what keeps me going as a pastor. That's what keeps me going when I'm asked to mentor and help and coach broken people. That's what keeps me going because somewhere in there, there could be a John Mark who could end up producing something greater than themselves in the midst of their brokenness and in the midst of their own weakness. And I think John Mark demonstrates that so beautifully. Second chances. It is what it's about. It is the difference that it makes and it has been. Our theme this week, talking to my guest, the Reverend Dr. John Andrews. His book is called Second Chance, The Fall and Rise of of John Mark. It's published by River Publishing. And the truth of the matter is, whether we're talking about a second chance or a 72nd chance, the opportunities that God gives us to be restored when we fall short are not get out of jail free cards. They are opportunities to move forward into the potential that he sees and to blossom into the life that will bring glory to his name that he desires for us. And if he sees that in us, and we look for that for ourselves, then just like those who rallied around John Mark, we need to rally around and address and deal with and all the things that John has said already in this conversation, but 
rally around and give second and third and fourth and fifth and seventy-second and so on chances that the reality of God might be manifest and nurtured in others' lives as well. John, it's always a pleasure to have you on for a Life Issues or indeed any conversation with you. Wonderful book with a great insight into a very important topic. Thank you for taking the time to join us this week. It's been my pleasure and thank you for having me. God bless you. You have been listening to UCB Life Issues. My thanks to my producer this week, Rebecca Smith. Life Issues is, of course, a UCB production. I'm Paul Hammond. Why not join me next week for another one? Ta-da!